All right, so we are in the, the middle, more, more or less, of our discussion of hermeneutics, how to interpret scripture. And we were into the principles of that you, principles that you have to keep in mind in order to interpret something accurately. When we finish the principles, we'll get into the process. So the first principle um, was the priority of the original languages. Those were inspired, so if, if you want to know what it means, you've got to get back to the original. The second one was the accommodation of revelation. Uh, God reveals things in a form that we can understand, so we need to be aware of literature and how it works. And now we're in the third principle, which is progressive revelation. We've been talking about this now for several weeks. It's the idea that God revealed himself progressively over time. He didn't dump everything about himself onto Adam and Eve. They had a certain relationship with God, um, but technically we know more about God and what he's like than they did because he has revealed more of himself to us than he did to them. And there are two ways of looking at uh, the progress of God's revelation of himself. We've talked about those. We'll wrap up that uh, discussion tonight. Um, but before we get there, the, the issue with progressive revelation, the importance in interpretation is you have to determine how much any given writer of Scripture knew about God before you can understand what he's saying. You can't read into an Old Testament passage everything we know about God because they didn't know it back then. God hadn't revealed it to, to them. So you have to put it in what we call the dispensational placement. <clears throat> and we've talked about dispensations, we've talked about covenants, the two ways of looking at progressive revelation and how God has revealed himself is through dispensations or through the covenants. And since we've talked about these already, we're not going to spend a lot of detailed time. But basically, dispensations are periods of time. God dealt with people differently in different periods of time. And with each dispensation, we learn more about God. The covenants, obviously, are the agreements that God has made with people over time. And with each covenant, we learn more about God. So the covenants and the dispensations both contribute to progressive revelation. <clears throat> there are two schools of thought related to those ideas, dispensations and covenants. On the information level, you're dealing with dispensations and covenants. Okay, If you look at scripture, those are pretty clear. you got covenants listed there. The Bible never talks about dispensations specifically, but if you analyze scripture, you can see that it breaks down into different periods of time throughout history. <clears throat> but people take those two issues and make them into ideologies. Dispensationalism and covenant theology. And on the one hand, dispensations and covenants are clear in Scripture. There's no conflict there. But when you get into the ideologies, there's a lot of conflict. Okay. Um, and we'll talk 
about that more in a minute. We went over this handout, and some of you don't have that. I have a few copies left. Let me pass this out. So we went through this uh, list already. The front side has the dispensations. And on the back, you have the covenants. Okay. And the more I looked at this, and the more I read up on covenant theology, the more I realized that this list is influenced by covenant theology. It's not just a list of the covenants that uh, are in Scripture, but it's listed them from the perspective of covenant theology. We talked about the fact that there is some animosity <laughs> on the part of covenant theologians toward dispensationalism. Um, because the uh, covenant theology position is uh, the historical position of the church, the covenant theologians would say. Way back when the church was being structured in the early years, the early church fathers adopted that view. Now, they didn't call it covenant theology. I don't think that term was in existence back there in the, the 100s to the 500s. <laughs> <Yeah>. <clears throat> but it's a basic idea. All right? they, they would adopt that idea. And we'll get into the strengths and weaknesses of these two systems as we go along. But just to show you how this lines up with covenant theology... Uh, covenant theology sees three basic covenants. One was a covenant between the members of the Trinity to redeem people who repented. That's basically number one on that list of covenants. You may remember when we talked about this, I said that really should be at the end because that, that's kind of a result of the new covenant. But covenant theology starts there that way before creation, who knows how many eons, God decided to offer redemption to people who would repent. Um, the second covenant would be number two here, the covenant with Adam, which they call the covenant of works. He made an agreement with Adam that as long as Adam and Eve obeyed, they could stay in the garden, but if they disobeyed, they'd have to leave. And the third covenant isn't listed here. It goes between two and three. It's the covenant of grace. After man fell, God decided to extend grace to mankind. And the rest of these, numbers three through eight, are the way he works out that covenant of grace, the way he implements that covenant of grace. The difficulty with all of that is that the Bible never mentions those three covenants. <laughs> it mentions these others. You have the covenant with Abraham, you have the covenant with Moses, you have the you know, covenant with Noah and all the others, all the way up to the new covenant. But it doesn't mention any of those three foundational covenants that are at the, the root of covenant theology. <clears throat> yeah. In your order here, is there a reason that eight is not 
higher on your list? Uh, no, this is this is more or less chronological. I have a problem with seven and eight. I would put them together because the covenant with the church. That to me, that's an outworking of the new covenant. But uh, they're dealing just with how God deals with the church as an entity, so they separated them. But the new covenant is the last one, and it, it supersedes all the others. So it's last. So um, that's basically the foundation of, of covenant theology, and, and Scripture doesn't say anything about it. One of the arguments covenant theologians have against dispensationalism is that the Bible doesn't talk about dispensations. And they're right, it doesn't. Well, the Bible doesn't talk about the foundational covenants of covenant theology either. So, <laughs> you know, so it's like the pot calling the kettle black. You know, you, they shoot themselves down with that argument. <clears throat> Um, I'm trying to think of what to do next. I got three things. <laughs> what order? Well, we'll go to the strengths and weaknesses of the two systems. Again, the 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 deal is, the importance is, you need to be aware of this because which of these you choose to use in order to interpret Scripture is going to determine the interpretation you come up with. <laughs> because there are two different ways of looking at Scripture. And the way you start determines where you end up. All right. So it's important for you to know what these are all about. We're not going into a, a really detailed discussion of these two ideologies we're not here for that but I want to give you enough information so you understand the importance of these things <clears throat> uh, the strong point of, of dispensations dispensationalism is that the Bible clearly is divided into sections of time where God dealt with people in different ways and we see that happening uh, I suppose you could say the strong point of covenant theology is that it is historical. It's the historical view of the church, the position of the early church fathers. One word of caution there, I don't mean to demean the early church fathers. They were obviously wise and learned people, but they were still human. They could make mistakes just as everybody else does. <laughs> so just because the church fathers believed in a certain doctrine or didn't believe in a certain doctrine doesn't necessarily mean they were right. Um, you can... Uh, well, covenant theology, of course, bases the, is based on what the early church fathers said. The early church fathers didn't say anything about dispensations because the idea didn't come up until the 1800s. This is a weak point for dispensationalism. It wasn't until the 1800s John Darby and the Plymouth Brethren Church in England came up with this idea of dispensations and rapture and all of that stuff. 
So the covenant theologians will say, well, we have the real one, the real position, because this is what the church fathers taught. Dispensationalism didn't come along until the 1800s. Talk about speaking on both sides of your mouth. Yeah. Because <laughs> customarily when they reach back to the church fathers, they say, hey, this idea or doctrine, whatever we believe in, it dates back to the church fathers. Mm-hmm. On this occasion, adding, it didn't sound like it's as valid, or if there's a, a critical or a weakness of the church fathers in their early belief systems. <clears throat> Well, it's my point, my, my, what's the word, concern, issue, maybe issue is a better word, is that the church fathers were just humans. I, I, I know of one teacher, an apologist, who wrote a thing on the rapture. He said he used to believe in the rapture, but after he realized that the early church fathers didn't say anything about the rapture. They were completely ignorant of the idea of a rapture. He decided it must not be true, and so doesn't believe in the rapture anymore. So are those things gathered in extra-physical writings? No, it's a church father's writings. Scripture? The church father's writings. What they wrote, what they wrote about Scripture, their commentaries. Okay, commentary about yeah, scripture. Of scripture. Yeah, yeah. So he says they knew nothing about the rapture, so it must not be true. But again, maybe they were wrong. <laughs> They're only human. <laughs> so um, there are strong points and weak points. And we already talked about a weak point in covenant theology that the basic foundational covenants that it rests on are nowhere to be found in Scripture. Do, we, um, do you think that uh, progressive revelation is continuing on through the church age, it seems to me that we have a better understanding of, um, of God's plan now than people did a hundred years ago. Yeah, I wouldn't... But does that fit in with this principle that you have? Um, no. Revelation was progressive up until Revelation stopped with the revelation of Christ. Yeah, I would say it's more along the lines of illumination, clarification, insight, but it's not new revelation. It's not new truth. I see. Okay. Yeah. Well, there's a common common day pitfall to call things personal revelation. Yeah. Yeah. Which is nothing more than really say enlightenment. Right. Yeah. And that ultimately gets down to, well, it's my opinion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is what God told me. You know. Well, really. Um, so, yeah, progressive, Revelation was progressive until it was completed in Christ. And then the, the New Testament then finished up that revelation by telling us, showing us the picture of Christ, who was the picture of God. Okay. Uh, since then, we might have more insights, okay. and especially as we people study the history, the culture, the languages that are behind the Bible. You know, we learn new things. And oh, so this scripture we always thought it meant this, but in light of <laughs> what we now know, it's got to mean something different. Yeah. So that's not more revelation. That's just insight. 
comprehension? Yeah. It would be like archaeology. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. <clears throat> um, so, differences between the two. Now, our denomination, most conservative denominations, are dispensational. Okay. Covenant theology is based on the Reformed theology, theology out of the Reformation, John Kelvin. Okay. And uh, hierarchical, hierarchical <laughs> churches are usually Reformed, like pres the pres Presbyterian Church, etc. Um, so we'll go and see some differences. So this is where this is where you need to see the difference, so you can understand how these different ideologies will influence your understanding of Scripture. Where you start determines where you end. So I have a chart here. It'll come up, but you're not going to be able to read it. <laughs> so I'll give you a handout. I could five years ago. everything we've said about these schools of thought over the last few weeks. Yeah. Are you familiar with Jonathan Kahn? No. Uh, he's a writer that, he, write, he has a lot of books out. Uh, and he says, because what he concentrates on are things that were hidden in Scripture. Ah. <laughs> and, you know, he gets all these secrets. Uh -huh. uh, which he says, now this is revelation, because nobody knew this before. Mm-hmm. So this is what his idea of progressive revelation is. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I've read some of his books. I'm not sure if he's actually a messianic rabbi, but he, he appears to be. Yeah. But he, he sounds very close to what I would call Jewish mysticism. Yeah, I was just going to say, it sounds like Kabbalah. Yeah. Yeah, well, he throws in a little bit of traditional scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. This stuff's very interesting. <laughs> this, this idea is very scary to me. In the 1700s, if you said rapture, you would be considered French and out of your mind. <laughs> and now it's a fun, fun, it's a statement of faith yeah. in most churches. So in a hundred years, what's the next enlightenment? How do we approach that? Really, I mean, there's yeah. <laughs> 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 but I mean, this is a scary idea of, of a rolling enlightenment. Yeah. Which really kind of sounds synonymous to Revelation, but I understand it's not. How do you combat that? Well, all you have, to, all you can do is go back to the facts. We're going to talk about that in a couple minutes here. Um, 
whatever your presuppositions are, everybody has presuppositions, you have to be sure your presuppositions line up with reality. Because <laughs> you can have presuppositions that are from Mars, you know, <laughs> and that's going to knock everything off, else off. Uh, let's go through the introduction here as a, a summary, and then we'll get into the chart and the differences between these two schools of thought. Uh, says, dispensationalism and covenant theology are two ways of viewing God's interaction with mankind since creation. Dispensationalism says that God has administered his rule on earth in different ways during different periods of time called dispensations. Covenant theology says that God has administered his rule on earth through agreements or covenants that he has made with various people at various times. An overview of scripture seems to show that both systems are true and not mutually exclusive. However, the underlying ideology and the way these systems are applied show them to be considerably different. From an objective point of view, dispensationalism seems to be more consistent with the Bible than is covenant theology. And we have a chart that shows these differences. Down the left, you have the issues, the, the basis of God's economy, the hermeneutic that each system uses, and then the ramifications, how these systems are applied. All right, so we'll see differences in those areas. <clears throat> the basis of God's economy for dispensationalism, as we've already said, different administrations during different periods of time, or dispensations. For covenant theology, it's different agreements or covenants with different peoples at different times. As we've already seen, those kind of fit. I mean, Scripture shows both of those, so there's no real conflict there, all right? We get into the conflict next <laughs> with a hermeneutic. What method of interpretation do these two schools of thought use? For dispensationalism, it uses the literal grammatical method, which is what we are studying. If you remember, we mentioned that it's the only system that really works because it looks at what Scripture says and gets the meaning out of the text. All of the other methods put meaning into the text. So the literal grammatical method says that scripture means what it says when taken in its linguistic and historical context. Covenant theology uses the allegorical method. The meaning of scripture is symbolic. Spiritual significance needs to be supplied. So the Bible doesn't mean what it says. What it says is symbolic of a spiritual meaning. And that spiritual meaning comes from outside the text. <laughs> you have to supply it. Which means you kind of just flip a coin <laughs> to decide what it means. Now they would say probably that they take their understanding of Scripture from the early church fathers. So it's the church that decided the spiritual meaning of the various passages of Scripture. That may be, but where did the early church fathers get their understanding of what Scripture means? They flipped a coin. <laughs> well, that's that's one application of it, yeah. I don't think the Catholics would be covenant the theology, but they have the same concept that the yeah. church determines the meaning of Scripture. Yeah. To me, that sounds an awful like God's word on man's terms. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> it 
Right. It's a sign for something. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I love the way people try to, you know, like, beat God to over here. <laughs> His mouthpiece, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so when we studied the allegorical method of interpretation, we saw that it's not really valid because you can supply any meaning you want. If it's symbolic, you have to decide what it is symbolic of. There is no objective basis for understanding what scripture means. <clears throat> the early church fathers used the allegorical method to come up with their understanding of, of scripture. So it's problematic. Um, so this would be another strength for dispensationalism it uses an objective approach to Scripture to determine what Scripture means. And it's a weakness in covenant theology because they use the allegorical method, which is open to interpretation. Oh, I can't really say that. It's open to opinion. <laughs> Some people use the word interpretation as a synonym for opinion. And they're not the, <laughs> they're not the same. Interpretation, as we were discussing in this whole series, is the art and science of determining what scripture means. That's not opinion, that's a science. Okay, that's a process. People do have opinions. <laughs> so we get into the ramifications and here is where this really the difference really shows up. All right. And two, uh, two areas of ramification here that I focused on because this is the, uh, these are the, the primary places where you see the difference. There may be others, but these will give you an idea. First deals with Israel and the church, and secondly, various aspects of eschatology or the end times. Right? For dispensationalism regarding Israel and the church, God's promises to Israel will be fulfilled to Israel. Israel and the church are distinct in God's plan. God chose Israel. He made Israel his spokesman. They kind of reneged on that deal <laughs> and isolated themselves from people instead of being God's missionaries as he had intended. Um, but Israel was Israel. The promised land. It was promised to Israel, the nation of Israel. The church is new covenant. That's a different entity. Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul just makes the distinction. National Israel has been set aside as God's chosen people. Well, they're still his people, but they're kind of inactive. <laughs> and so that Gentiles can be brought in. And once God has brought in all the Gentiles he wants, then he will bring Israel back in. And he says there, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God chose Israel. He's not going to throw them out. Okay. So the Israel, national Israel, and the church are different things. According to covenant theology, the new covenant replaces the old covenant, so the church has replaced Israel in God's plan. All the Old Testament promises to Israel will, will be fulfilled in the church. Yeah. So what do they do in Revelation? 
We'll get there. <laughs> okay. Yes, exactly. Yeah, replacement field. <laughs> the thing is, covenant theology says that Israel was the church in the Old Testament. In a sense, the church was embodied in Israel in the Old Testament, so when the New Covenant came along, that was all done away with, and the church kind of emerged out of Israel. So all the promises that were given to Israel in the Old Testament were really given to the church, because the church was Israel, or Israel was the church in the Old Testament. Israel was kind of like the church in embryo. <laughs> Yeah. You have a problem there because they both have distinct beginnings. Yeah. And distinct ministries. Yeah. He's going to deal with them in the future differently. Yeah. I would agree with that. So that's what he says. I I just finished reading a book last week. The End Times: A Historical Perspective, Covenant Theology. It's uh, the guy in here, this, this was by uh, D. James Kennedy, Presbyterian, so Reformed theology. He never mentions covenant theology, but the things he says indicate <laughs> that that's his position. This, this reminded me of it because he says, he talks about the church, he says, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> yeah. Interesting book. If you want to get a a view of how covenant theology sees the end times, you know, this is the book to you. This is just really an overview. It's only 95 pages. So he doesn't go into a lot of detail. Okay. But he deals with these issues that we're dealing with here. Um, so that's one difference. How, does is, how do Israel and the church relate according to dispensationalism and covenant theology? Again, dispensationalism, since it takes the word for what it says, you know, God promised these promises to Israel, therefore he's going to fulfill the promises to Israel. Okay? Covenant theology that sees things as symbolic says, well, <laughs> not necessarily. <clears throat> for eschatology, four, four issues here, the rapture, the tribulation, the... Uh, Millennium and the uh, final fulfillment of the kingdom prophecies, which you sort of already talked about a little bit. So for dispensationalism, it sees the rapture removing the church from the judgment that comes in the tribulation. Okay, the, the tribulation is a time of God's wrath against people who have rebelled against him. It's also a time of, of uh, persecution for Israel. So the church is not in view. And there won't take time to go into it because it's not our purposes, but the um, argument in favor of the pre-tribulation rapture is kind of a circumstantial argument. People take statements from different verses and put them together and come up with the rapture. Okay. Now, there's nothing wrong with the circumstantial argument. <laughs> a lot of court cases are won on the basis of circumstantial evidence. You just have to be sure the evidence really fits. Okay. Covenant theology, on the other hand, says the rapture occurs at the second coming of Christ after the millennium. 
And I put millennium in quotes there because they don't really believe in a millennium. Okay, as we'll see in a minute. So, one thing I have to point out here, and, and Kennedy makes it clear in his book, they are, their understanding of rapture is different from our understanding of rapture. The only place that word shows up, well, actually it doesn't. It's a Latin word, and the New Testament is written in Greek. So, the word rapture doesn't, isn't there. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when it talks about what's going to happen when Christ comes for his own, it talks about the dead being raised, and then the living believers, along with the dead, will be caught up into heaven. And the word in Greek, caught up, is harpazo. The equivalent in Latin is rapture. Okay, so we get the word rapture from Latin. Jerome, what was it, second century? Second century. Um, made a Latin translation of the Bible the Latin Vulgate, so that, you know, Latin was the common language, so now everybody could have a copy, okay? So he used the word rapture in that verse. But that's the only place that that word is used in reference to what's going to happen when Christ returns. Is that one in, in 1 Thessalonians 4? Kennedy and the, the, the covenant theologians use the word rapture to mean everything that happens at Christ's second coming. Going to descend, the shout of the angel, the trumpet of God, <laughs> you know, all of those things are the rapture. So they're using rapture to mean when Christ returns for his own. Uh, this one's taken away. The rapture occurs at the second coming of Christ after the millennium? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Read the book. <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. Somebody else? Yeah, I think I've read somewhere. I don't know if it's true, but the, in contemporary times, the first thing the word, use of the word rapture was from the Schofield Bible. Have you ever read anything somewhere? No, I've never read Schofield's notes. Yeah. Uh, in Greek, it's Carpazzo, snatch up. Right? Mm hmm. Well, it means to grab quickly and forcefully, yeah. The word rapture is not used in any translation I have. But I read the word using that word before the Scofield Bible, which is like, what, 1912 or something? Well, that may be, as far as English translations go. But Jerome is the one who used that word in that verse to translate Harpazo. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, they believe that Christ is, is going to come once, one time only, and that's after the millennium, and then we have the white throne judgment, and then we have the eternal state. Okay. So it's not a pre-tribulation rapture. The next issue is the tribulation. For dispensationalism, the seven-year tribulation brings judgment of, on unbelievers and persecution on Israel and new believers. It says in the book of Revelation, there will be multitudes of people saved during the tribulation. They're going to be persecuted along with Israel. Okay, And God also judges the unbelievers who re rebel against him, reject him. All those plagues that come on <laughs> the earth, you know, every time God does something 
to judge them, instead of repenting, they shake their fists. They know it's judgment from God and they don't like it. So it's a seven-year period because Revelation, Book of Revelation talks about seven years, the Book of Daniel talks about seven years, broken up into two, three-and-a-half-year periods. So taking Scripture to mean what it says, dispensationalism says that's what's going to happen, a <laughs> seven-year period. Covenant theology uh, says there will be no specific tribulation period. It is symbolic, here we go back to the allegory thing, it is symbolic of any time throughout church history that believers have suffered for their faith or wars and disasters have happened. <clears throat> no, they say it's... Numbers are symbolic, not literal. And he talks about that in the book. So it's not a real seven-year period. It's just the fact that believers have always had hard times. And Kennedy takes it back to John 14, where Jesus says, you know, in this world you're going to have tribulation, you know, but I've overcome the world. He says, see, it, tribulation is just hard times. You can make the Bible say anything. Yeah, I know. Sounds like wishful Yeah. <laughs> right. So, dispensationalism... Well, <laughs> again, we're going through it because you have to understand how these viewpoints are going to affect the way you understand Scripture. You know, if you approach Scripture from the covenant theology point of view, you're going to get a different meaning than you would get if you did it from the dispensational point of view. Could be. It <laughs> could be. I don't know. I, I, I've never heard any... Yeah. Okay, that brings up another weakness in, in dispensationalism, if I can do a little anachronism here. Um, the big danger of dispensationalism is what's called hyper-dispensationalism, which you take these different periods of time the dispensations, and you say, well, what God said in that dispensation was for that dispensation. It's not for us, so we don't have to worry about it. You could also call the dispensation. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I haven't heard that term. But obviously that doesn't work because the New Testament says that 1 Corinthians and some couple of other places that what was written beforehand was written for our benefit. <laughs> we can learn from it. It wasn't written to us, but we can... You know, that's an object lesson for us. The writer to Hebrews brings this up in, the, I think, the second chapter of Hebrews. He warns his, the, the Jews he's writing to, don't be like your forefathers who, instead of trusting God and going in and taking the promised land when they had a chance, rebelled and were punished for it. Well, his readers were not in a position of taking over the promised land, but they could learn not to rebel against God from that incident. So, you can't be hyper-dispensational. That doesn't work. That's a contradiction of Scripture. 
So tribulation is just trouble. He also goes to Matthew 24 in the book there, where it talks about tribulation. It's just, you know, hard times. I don't think his understanding of, of uh, Matthew 24 is, is quite accurate either. Uh, then we get to the uh, millennium. Uh, according to dispensationalism, Christ will reign in righteousness for a thousand years, and Israel will be the center of worship on earth. That's the Davidic kingdom, the, the covenant he made with David. Um, taking the Bible literally for what it says, it says Christ is going to reign for a thousand years, so he's going to reign for a thousand years. Covenant theology says there is no literal 1,000-year reign of Christ. The number of thousand simply means a long period of time. Kennedy says, he goes into numerology, and you're familiar with the significance of certain numbers, like three is the number of man, seven is the number of perfection. He says 10 is the number of completeness. So a thousand is 10 times 10 times 10. So you've got completeness. <laughs> so it's just a symbol that everything's going to be finished. It's not a thousand years. And he justifies the symbolic use of numbers in the book there by saying that the book of Revelation is a symbolic book. And so the numbers in the book are symbolic. I'm thinking, well, <laughs> it's true. No, it's just it's just the overemphasis on completion. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Super complete. So, um, yeah. Context determines the meaning of a word. So whether a number is symbolic or not depends on the context. You can't just say that because it's in a symbolic book, the number is automatically symbolic. <clears throat> And it goes on there, the millennium, and again, I keep putting that in quotes, and it's, it's amazing because in the book there, he, he acknowledges that the word millennium literally means a thousand years. Mill is a thousand, and annum is a year, so millennium is a thousand years. But he says it doesn't mean a thousand years. Why do they use that word? <laughs> it doesn't mean what it says. So the millennium is symbolic of Christ's reign in the hearts of believers and the expansion of his universal kingdom. And it's concurrent with tribulation. Because just as we always have tribulation, we always have trouble, so God is always at work in the hearts of his people in building his church. So they kind of happen simultaneously. You have bad times, but God is still at work. Okay, so there's no seven-year tribulation. There's no thousand-year millennium, which to me seems to be a contradiction in terms anyway. It sounds like there's no book of Daniel either. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that's one of the problems of this little book. As I said, it's just an overview. He doesn't get into those kinds of issues. But what he says is interesting. It gives you some insights into covenant theology. And finally, then, we have the uh, fulfillment of the kingdom promises dispensationalism indicates that the a faithful remnant of Israel will receive the fulfillment of God's kingdom, the promises, okay, to Israel. <clears throat> Excuse me. God always talks about a remnant. He always works with a remnant. Okay. How many times in the Old Testament can you think of 
when God took just a handful <laughs> to accomplish something huge. Yeah. Well, covenant theology says since the church has replaced Israel in God's plan, there is no faithful remnant in Israel to receive kingdom prophecies. They will be fulfilled in the church. As we saw before, you know, the church, the, Israel was kind of the church in embryo in the Old Testament, and then it evolved into the church. So these are differences, some differences, between dispensationalism and covenant theology, which give you an idea of the significance <laughs> uh, on interpretation. All right? If you don't have the foundation, you know, your destination is going to be off. Now, everybody has presuppositions. Okay? Nobody can escape presuppositions. You just have to be sure, as I said before, that your presuppositions are accurate. And we're out of time. So, one more thing to say about all this. <laughs> we'll do it next week. <laughs> So any any other observations or comments about any of that? No, I do appreciate all of this though because it's really opening my eyes. I've heard about covenant theology and I thought, eh, it makes a huge difference mm -hmm. in the way you look at the scriptures. It really does. Right. Especially when they talked about Israel and on those covenants and how it was conditional and consistent with this debate and God doesn't, you know, just... Makes up. <laughs> it's, it's, I like it. <laughs> well, that's no, true. Yeah. A good summary for the for the balance between Israel and the church is Romans nine, ten, eleven. Because Paul summarizes the relationship there between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now you have to be careful there because I'm kind of equating the church with Gentiles and that's not exactly accurate either. <laughs> but you've got a balance there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no e-tickets. Yeah, and they, um, while it initially used to be the idea that the um, the church has replaced Israel, they've, they've, um, they've rebelled against that idea, and now they say that the church really began with Israel. Yeah. So they'll, they'll go back to Moses and say, well, that was really the start of the church. The problem is you've got to deal with statements from Jesus Christ saying, I will build my church, mm -hmm. I, I will continue the church, or I will you know, extend the church, or anything like that. And then the other, you know, you've got passages like um, in, in Acts chapter 1, after 40 days, the disciples had spent 40 days with Jesus Christ on the road to Emmaus, hearing about how all the Old Testament pointed to him. Um, and, uh, and then they asked the question, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom, right? Mm -hmm. um, which, um, if covenant theology is true, you would expect that they just completely missed the point right. of all those 40 days of teaching. You know, but what does Jesus say? No, it's not for you to know times or ethics, which suggests that, yeah, there is a kingdom coming. It's just, it's just not going to be now. Right. So. So there's a difference. <laughs> but the gospel is the same. I mean, I mean you know, the, the gospel that's being proclaimed is the same. Um, but, but yeah, it's um, unfortunately... Well, unless you allegorize everything. Well, they essentially allegorize... Yeah, I mean, they, they have license to allegorize the Old Testament. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they would point to 
some ways in which the um, the apostles refer to the like you know there, there's some references that, that the apostles make to the Old Testament that are that are hard to explain, and um, and, and they'll say see that's proof that um, that the apostles can allegorize the Old Testament that means that we can allegorize it you know as well, yeah. you know, so they you know, so there's this apostolic method of interpretation that they would refer to, which um, which I, I would argue back as, okay, those were prophets of God, yeah. and moved by the Spirit of God, mm-hmm. and, and they have, you know, and they, they're moved by God to, to write and, and to reveal certain truths, but if you take that as your own, um, there's no um, there's no standard of truth, because some, one person can allegorize it one way, and another person can allegorize it another way, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and that's, that's problematic. Hey, and another reason for those differences, as we talked about this before, our Old Testament is based on the Hebrew text, the Masoretic text, and the quotes we have in the New Testament are from the Septuagint. <laughs> so they're not the same. Okay. Same idea, but saying it different ways. <laughs> All right, let's close in prayer.